Talk is Jericho. It's the pot of thunder and rock and roll. And we are powered by our fellow rock fans, Geico. And you know Geico is excited about Nancy Wilson's upcoming performance with the Seattle Symphony Orchestra. Nancy and the Symphony will be performing songs from her new solo album, You and Me, along with some classic heart tunes. This is all happening Saturday, October 30th at the Benaroya Hall in Seattle. Still a handful of tickets available if you want to check this out in person. Or you can be like our friends at Geico and stream the event live from the comfort of your own living room. Go to seattlesymphony.org for tickets. Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Nancy Wilson of Heart makes her talk as Jericho debuted today to talk about this incredible event with the symphony and her first solo album, You and Me, which is a mix of Nancy's original songs and some incredible cover tunes. She takes on Springsteen, The Beatles, Pearl Jam. She's got some great guests helping her out, like our pal Duff McKagan, Sammy Hagar. Nancy's also telling some great heart stories today from their early days touring with Rod Stewart to the time Eddie Van Halen called her in the middle of the night to play a song he'd just written to the time John Mellencamp opened for heart and wanted to switch positions in the lineup. She talks about performing Led Zeppelin songs in front of Jimmy Page and Robert Plant, what she loves most about Paul McCartney and what it was like filming her great cameo in the movie Fast Times at Ridgemont High which was listed in the script. Her role was beautiful girl in car. And she certainly was so many great stories with a true pioneer and legend in rock and roll. One of the original riot girls, Nancy Wilson, right here. Hey, can you buy me a drink? Uh, I left my wallet in the car. Oh, gee. I, oh, forgot my wallet. <laughs> you know what's funny is that this interview was was meant to be because today when I got in my car to go do some errands, you know you have the Bluetooth thing, yeah. And I was listening to something on my phone, but then it switched over just to my music for whatever reason, and for no reason whatsoever, never was playing. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> the sign of the rock and roll gods that we are we're meant to talk today. Uh, well, it's some kind of sign. <laughs> so, so Nancy, um, awesome to talk with you. Uh, I've ran into you a few times backstage here and there, but uh, it's really cool to me, just kind of jumping right into it, that when this whole lockdown thing started going on, you had a similar reaction that I had. I'm not going to just sit around and... and twiddle thumbs and learn how to ballroom dance. Let's get creative here. And that's exactly what your attitude was when, when all this happened. Yeah. Well, I did try to get into a jigsaw puzzle <laughs> and I failed. <laughs> <laughs> when I said, ding, I have a studio space in my new house and ding, why don't I use this opportunity, you know, for writing music. It's blessing inside of a larger curse for sure. But I'm really happy how it came out, and I'm really proud of it. It's amazing, too, because, I mean, you, you were obviously a road dog, as I am, as many of us are, and we've never been forced to take this long of a break before. So it really was like, well, if you can't go out and tour, the other option is to just stay at home and be creative and, in your case, record. So I think, I think a lot of musicians kind of made that choice. Yeah, I know. There's... A lot of cool stuff that's been starting to come out and has been out because of that, too. And uh, 
I'm just among many now that's used, you know, the time for the same purpose. I listened to a test pressing the other day. It was like, oh, my God, how fun, you know, to drop the needle and, you know, <laughs> listen to a new bunch of songs that actually not bad for really sound great for the like being, you know, home cooked. <laughs> mm-hmm, right. Yeah. <laughs> but you, you, you've always had a lot of great help and, and, and kind of other dudes joining in and, and stepping in on the session, even with heart on tour. Uh, when you guys have had some of your VH1, you know, idol sessions or whatever they call them. But this album, you brought in some of your friends to, to join you as well. Well, my players who are all in Seattle, all the guys that were in the last lineup of Heart, uh, except for the first Heart drummer who was in Heart Longest, mm. are all yeah. in Seattle. And they, um, I went to them. It's like, okay, you guys. Because I'd played with them a lot, even beyond Heart, with my Roadcase Royale band. Mm. I brought Ryan Waters from Roadcase into Heart on the last Big Heart tour. So, yeah, so I was like, okay, well, I'm going to make this demo in my house, and I'm going to get the tempo, and I'm going to send it to my guy in Denver, and he's going to put it in the Dropbox and send it to the drummer. going to lay down a, a part to my part send it back through Denver to me, mixed, and I'll say, well, change this thing, send it back to Seattle, then, you know, to each guy in the band, and then back through Denver to me in Northern California. So we had like a merry-go-round of, you know, tracks and parts to approve. And Mm -hmm. so it took a longer time, you know, it took a whole year, basically. So... But it, it was really satisfying, really satisfying to do it that way, just to have like the luxury of time to be able to just fashion it and, you know, hone it to what you really want. This kind of like the, the modern way of making music in a lot of ways, like you said, before it was getting into a room and just sitting down and banging it out. And now it's dropboxing it and, and hearing each other's individual tracks. What are the biggest differences for you doing it both ways for so many years on both ends? Well, I felt kind of like I was the producer, you know, mm-hmm. I'm the producer this time. There's no additional opinion except for my own, right? which direction to take the stuff. So, so I had full on control of everything. <laughs> And I know the band well enough as having played with them so so much. I know what they, how they play, what to expect them to do coming up to a chorus, for instance, you know. So I've learned on stages a lot about what to leave out, you know, how to let the other guy shine and leave that space for the big fill into the chorus or whatever it is going to be, or build up to that guitar solo Mm -hmm. for the solo to happen or whatever it is. Yeah, just how to, you know, read each other's minds as players, as live players. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, all the live playing I've done with these particular guys, it sounded very together in the same room somehow, you know, when it was done, which I was very happy about that because it sounds like a band in a room. Well, as Geico points out, you get that chemistry too when you play together so much, right? Oh, for sure. You know, you know what the jokes are. Like we were doing the boxer in the last heart shows, many shows, 58, I think. Mm-hmm. Our keyboard player, Dan, 
was sent me a cartoon. Like there's a line in the song that goes, just to come on from the whores on seventh Avenue. And he sent me this cartoon. I think it was a New Yorker. It was like this horse walking down a sidewalk, looking at the guy going, Hey, (laughs) so every time we played it from there for the rest of the entire tour, we'd be like, (laughs) I'd always have to like flash a look at him (laughs) because, but you know, you have the camaraderie and you have um, each other's backs. And so, yeah, all of the above is one of the things I miss about being on the road with a really cool rock band. Question from our friends at Geico. How did you decide the track listing for the record? Because there's some originals and some covers, kind of a little bit of everything. Well, I was writing along. The first thing I wanted to do was the rising before I'd even written very much. Mm-hmm. Because knowing that it had been written by Bruce Springsteen right. for 9-11 originally, it was an aspirational moment. Like There was so much horrific pain and suffering and loss going on in the world at the beginning of the pandemic, and still is, especially then it was the scariest and the most heart-wrenching time. And so I figured a song like that, you know, I'd I'd been and seen Springsteen on Broadway, and I'd seen that song done, stripped down, and it was like, wow. I didn't hear it that way on the radio. You know, or a lot of his stuff was stripped down. And you, like Born in the USA, you know, like all of the huge radio hits, he was just doing all by himself with a piano or a guitar. So I got into the Bruce of it all, and I figured that is a meaningful song for the for the times. Mm-hmm. And that's why I put that one together. Then I got on a roll. I wanted to do more. I wanted to do more. You know, stuff like the song by the Cranberries. Oh. That's a great song, and I've always mm-hmm. loved we were just driving around in in Sonoma, and we heard it on our local station. It's like, wow. And Jeff, my husband, goes, you got to sing that as a duet with Liv, Liv Warfield. Oh, yes. Okay. They are from Roadcase Royale. So we did that. And then um, I had already covered the Pearl Jam song Daughter for a film that's now out on Netflix called I Am All Girls, which is a really cool, true story about a woman whose individual story about being a sex traffic. Mm, gotcha. I chose that song for that film because there's the, the line in the song says, she holds the hand that holds her down, which is just indicative of the whole, you know, topic of that film. Right. So that was, I, I was able to just, put that in my pocket and you know, then I had the rising and then I started writing more and writing more and covering a couple more things that were just, you know, always wanted to cover this, always wanted to cover Mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. on the vinyl. There's a couple extra ones. I do any major dude by Steely Dan, which I always want to cover. I did. That's cool. Blackbird, which is, it's almost sacrilegious to ever cover a Beatles song. But so hard, right? Yeah. It's a Wings song. So I figured I'd, let, I'd allow myself to cover it. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting because just going back to the Cranberries, when I was kind of uh, reading through the songs that you did, everyone forgets about Dreams because it's all about zombie and all this other thing. And first of all, I, zombie has a billion hits on YouTube, a billion views, a billion. I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> a billion. B- billion with a B, yeah. Yeah, with a B. I mean, geez, <laughs> Louise. 
her as a singer, Dolores O'Riordan, has such a distinct voice and kind of how she trills up and down. And obviously, you're going to do it your way. But just a great, great tune that probably should be covered at this point. Yeah, I don't remember anyone really covering it. Mm-mm. Because it, you know, it's kind of in a range where a lot of guys wouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Plus, it's a duet, and it's kind of a feminine topic, you know. Too, it's like, you know, don't break my heart. You know, <laughs> I'm in, I'm in, but don't don't hurt me now. Yeah, so that was just a, it. Sort of dropped out of the sky because that would be the perfect way to get Liv involved on my album. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Fits perfectly. There's a great story that I actually read about a few months ago. One of the one of the tunes that you have on there is a tribute to to EVH to, to Eddie Van Halen, and uh, it's called For Edward. Can you please tell the story because it just blows my mind as it blew yours when you heard what you heard from Eddie. Yeah, we were in the eighties, you know, in the roaring eighties. We were <laughs> on the road, the road with Van Halen a few times and staying in the same hotels and stuff. And one time backstage, he said. Uh, I really like the way you play the acoustic. And I was like, wow, coming from you, God. You know, you should play more acoustic. Why don't you play more acoustic? And he says, well, I don't bring one out. I don't really have one. <laughs> That's impossible. You have to have one. And I have one for you, and I'm giving it to you right now. So then you fast forward to, like, oh, dark 30 to next <laughs> morning. My phone rings in my room. It's Eddie, and he's like, "Oh my God, oh my God!" It's like, "Slow down! What are you talking? What?" And he's like, "I wrote something, and I want to play for you on the phone." And so he proceeds to play me this gorgeous piece of acoustic guitar, almost like a little classical with some rock. And he's like, "Wow!" You know, and I'm like, "Yeah, that's just gorgeous! Oh my God, thank you so much!" And then later, you know, the next day. I said, wow, thank you so much for writing that thing. That was really gorgeous. And he was like, what was it again? <laughs> <laughs> he might have been just a little bit partied out. <laughs> right. you know? But hopefully he remembered it or he put it, recorded it or something. But anyway, that was my little tribute to his gesture of, you know, doing an acoustic instrumental for me. And you know, I, I told people I was doing it before I actually did it, that I had to do it. Right. So I painted myself into the ultimate corner. I had to really rack my brain about what would be right. and Because usually it's, here's what you don't want to do. Here's what you don't want to do. Mm-hmm. Don't do that or that or that or that. But, you know, that excludes a whole bunch of things that you don't, you're not going to do. But what is it that you do want to do? <laughs> <laughs> it was a daunting challenge, but... um I figured it out because it had, I knew shorter was better mm-hmm. instrumental. So there's no vocals to kind of keep you interested. You can't do the trill on the acoustic, especially when you're not using light strings, which I don't. And then major keys were so common to his writing. Right. I knew it had to be major. I found the tuning. I felt like the harmonics from like a bookend piece would be great to kind of send up like a prayer, you know, yeah, a little blessing, you know, because harmonics have a, a heavenly kind of a sound to them. And I put some little rock stuff I had in my back pocket in the middle and there you go. Figured it out. 
You know, it's interesting to add to that story, and it's something I wanted to, to tell you, is I had Randy Bachman on this show a few years ago, and Van Halen's first tour with Sammy, BTO opened up because they wanted to get an opening band that could just forget the fact that Roth isn't there, that here's BTO taking care of business, boom, 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 here comes Van Halen. That was an intelligent plan. Smart move, right? So Randy told me that a couple times during the night at Oh Dark 30, he would get a call dude, you got to hear this. I'm coming to your room with his acoustic guitar that he said, Nancy Wilson gave me this guitar. Oh, wow. And was still writing his songs in the middle of the night to play for somebody. <laughs> who knows if it was the same song? <laughs> yeah. Hey, who knows if it was the same guitar, but he thought it was. <laughs> I mean, you're not going to disturb the people in the next room if you're not playing too loud on an acoustic because you don't have to plug it in. Exactly. It's perfect. It's interesting to me that you had – there's a couple things I was going to talk about kind of in that time frame with Van Halen era. When you think about 70s bands that, that were able to transfer to the 80s, it's Van Halen, it's Rush, it's ZZ, and it's Heart. Yeah. To where there's almost two versions of the same band. How did you guys make that leap, and was it hard? Was there a lot of fan backlash that the 70s rock heart became this – huge band but it was a little bit more of a slicker production same as van halen and rush and zz etc right i think there was an identity crisis going on in the 80s <laughs> with music in general it was less mind expanded the seven like the 60s and 70s were and it became more kind of ego driven because it became more about the cocaine era of it all and all of the new digital stuff was just breaking wide open so you put digital stuff with producers that on cocaine, you're going to have a whole different thing that's happening in the 80s, right? <laughs> right. It's going to be more and more layer, 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 layering and layering. And they would do all those triggering things and all of the one snare hit with all these different keyboard sounds to make a new sound. Right. Like one day it was triggering a snare with pause in the what you call whatever those like the midi or whatever the hell it was the roll yeah midi yeah midis yeah the midi thing that was one whole day in the studio that one day wow we're like we're gonna sit here and you know all day <laughs> i think we'll go have lunch or something it got so a little overblown and bombastic production wise and plus the writers they were hiring hit songwriters from the L.A. songwriters stable that had had hits before, and they didn't want you writing your own hit song. Interesting. Wow. Everybody, like Aerosmith and Kiss. Kiss, and they've written some great songs. Well, if you like Kiss, you know. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm, dudes like Kiss more than I did. But, yeah, yeah, um, gotcha. <laughs> you know, so it was a whole stylistic a switcher upper. It was a switcheroo. Mm -hmm. I think in order to survive, you felt that you had to sort of follow those guidelines and do those songs. Now, a song like Alone is a great song now. A song like These Dreams is still a great song. What about Love? You know, even though it was a Swiffer song for a minute, it was still a great <laughs> song. What is a Swiffer song? There's that Swiffer thing that's like a home cleaning tool. <laughs> they they use that for the for the commercial because there was the Swiffer 
was replacing the mop. And so the mop was outside watching the Swiffer do the job. And the mop was like, what about love? Momentarily a Swiffer song. But there was a few other ones, too. You look it up, like, probably on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you're saying that those songs still hold up today, but at the time it was weird for you guys to do them, or, or is that what you were saying? Or Those songs we liked, we still love those songs. We still like to play those songs. But the fact that it was a little bit hurtful that we, we, we were kind of expected to always record other people's songs, only a couple of our own on, on the same album, but yeah, it was a whole different fashion type. The fashions then were very different. I'm glad when grunge came back along, <laughs> it exploded a lot about the ego 80s. You know, it was definitely kicking the ass of that stuff. It's kind of like that's just how show business and rock and roll goes, right? Is is whatever is kind of hot at the time, everyone jumps on it till it becomes oversaturated. Then it's got to switch again, right? Yeah, I mean, there were some guys that had been in Heart that went to another band with Tommy, somebody, forget the name. Oh, God, I can't think their name. But they had a huge number one hit with their big power ballad. And then Nirvana sort of stepped in. And two weeks later, they were dropped from the label. Was it Bad English, maybe? Alias. Oh, Alias. Oh, wow. Alias, yeah. They had a huge number one, and then they were dropped. Like, unceremoniously and quickly when Smells Like Teen Spirit arrived, you know. And the whole new style came and changed everything up. It's interesting, though, because you guys came from Seattle. And Seattle's always had a scene. If you go back to the late 60s with Hendrix, you know, then it switches to 70s with Part and a couple other bands. Even Ray Charles. Oh, that. I didn't know. Yeah. There right. you go. But then when it switches over, I mean, uh, I know Duff played on your record. He was a Seattle guy. And then it goes to grunge. You guys kind of fit in with that, though, being kind of OG pioneers yeah. of that sound in a lot of ways. Yeah, well, you know, we got together. We came back from the 80s pretty embarrassed in a lot of ways to go home to Seattle mm -hmm. because all the cool guys were now from Seattle. <laughs> Didn't know how they were going to feel about some of our big bombastic eighties hit songs and some of those videos too, you know, and so they were really, it was right about the time when Andrew Woods of mother love bone OD mm -hmm. and a mutual friend. And one of my best, oldest, dearest friends was, Kelly Curtis was the manager of my Mother Love Bone and then Wookie Blaylock and then Pearl Jam was until just recently. He uh, said, Oh, you guys, you got to come to this service. We're, we're going to have a celebration of Andrew Wood's life. But bring your dogs to this house and, and you're going to meet the guys. And so we all converged on this place and everybody was, you know, really primal and, happy but sad but happy but sad you know crying and laughing and crying and we met all those guys chris cornell we met you know all the allison chains guys we met the screaming trees we met mm -hmm. mud honey guys all the all of the cool bands of the time and the nirvana guys and so we all kind of came together in over the loss of a great rock singer and got to know them and then we started hanging out more, like we'd have a party at Ann's house and 
guys like Jerry Cantrell would be there and we'd be like, he'd be like, show me how to play the beginning of this all wind, you know, because he, he loves all that dissonant mm-hmm. type playing, which he does better than anybody. And so I showed him the Mr. All Wind stuff and they were really forgiving and cool and supportive about what we'd all been through. They'd all been young startups at Gazaris and clubs like that, you know. Right. They all liked Kiss and stuff like that. So, you know, it was, it was just kind of a, the next, here comes the next. Next wave. Wave of, of cool rock guys and. It was really cool. Sleater Kinney mm-hmm. and all that good stuff coming out of the Northwest areas. It is, it is, must be kind of cool for you guys. Like when you're thinking about rocking, rock and roll girls, women type thing, it goes way beyond that. But you guys still are kind of for a rock and roll band, and it's not all female, but you and Anne, you really have become legends of. <laughs> Not just of of the scene because you're, because you're women, but just of the scene in general. Yeah. Are you kind of proud of that? Do you kind of ever think about that? <laughs> yeah. Well, there was a couple of years in the earlier '80s where we had kind of a lull in our career, and we were headlining, and John Mellencamp was opening for Heart, mm-hmm. but then his album went to number one, and our album flopped. And so we were like, shit, the opener has a number one album and we have a turkey. And <laughs> he came into our hotel room once and and he goes, um, hey, what if we just switch positions in the show? You know, I'll just finish the show and you open for us. We're like, no way, man. And so then we kind of turned to each other and went, okay, are we legends yet? <laughs> <You know? laughs> That was a long time ago. So. <laughs> well, that was the whole second wave of the career. Another thing, too, it's, it's interesting to me um, that I wanted to ask you about. The last few times I've seen Hart, you guys have played some Zeppelin tunes. You've kind of, like, even talking about Mr. All Wind, and there's always been kind of a Zeppelin vibe to you. Obviously, it's an influence, but you very much make a point of still playing the Zeppelin songs in your set. Yeah. What are the reasons for that? You know, we have to stop ourselves from playing too much Zeppelin in the set because we have so many Zeppelin songs we'd love to play ever since we were in clubs and cabarets. And so, okay, we have to limit ourselves to only two at the most Zeppelin songs per show. So we kind of switch them up. We do Stairway to Heaven for a while. We do Battle of Evermore for a while or Black Dog for a while or, you know, many of them. Many, many were. And so they called us in Vancouver where we started out, Little Led Zeppelin, since we played too much Zeppelin. Right. I think at this stage of the game with Zeppelin never really playing, you guys are the closest to kind of holding that torch. I mean, Anne's voice just kills it. You guys are in the same vibe from the same era. It's like you're keeping those songs alive in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah. You know, and as a player, I channel Jimmy a lot where it, when I move on stage, when I'm moving around, you know, rocker sizing. <laughs> <laughs> but also Paul McCartney is another way I like to move on stage because I like Paul's moves. I always have a joke with Mike McCready of Pearl Jam because he goes, I'm doing your moves on stage. And I'm <laughs> saying, okay, then I'm going to do some of your moves on stage. 
Because he does this one move where he walks in a big wide circle, you know, like for a long time during during a song, and then I, and then he goes all the way around the other way up and forth. You know, he he has a few moves that look really good that I borrowed. You know, so we channel other favorites. You know, but as Geico says, nobody can do the Nancy Wilson kick though. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I have a few, you know, of my own. <laughs> How was it for you guys when you played? Uh, it's one of my favorite performances, actually. And I'm not just saying that. I showed it to the guys in my band quite often. Uh, when you guys did Stairway to Heaven at the Kennedy uh, Honors and the guys, uh, Jimmy Page and John Paul Jones and Robert Plant were actually there. A little nervous there? Or how was that? Oh, God. Yeah, right? No pressure. <laughs> yeah, it was It was a little daunting because we only had one rehearsal the night before because we were on tour already. We had to private in to get there for the one rehearsal the day before the actual show. And it was cold in December and waiting for a car outside to take us to the rehearsal for the first rehearsal. My hands got really frozen like icicles. And then we were rushed right into this rehearsal room with everybody, like all the singers, all the bands and players and everybody. And it's like, okay, go. And I'm like, oh, you didn't even warm up yet. So I was like kind of blowing it, you know, like in front of this whole room full of people. And, was, and just because of my fingers wouldn't move very fast because they were so fucking cold. <laughs> then after, you know, we kind of, I kind of stumbled my way through. I was probably red as, you know, a beat because it was like so embarrassing. I know the song. I've played all my life. Right. And I'm, they're saying, well, we could shadow you. We could kind of have somebody, you know, behind playing the part. With you. And I'm like, no, 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 no. That's not going to do it. I'm going to have my hands warmed up by the time I play. And I'm, I can do this. Mm -hmm. So no shadow. So I put my fingers in my husband Jeff's armpits <laughs> before we walked out there. But it was still, you had to, like, so, in a room like that, with Zeppelin there, mm. a bunch of dignitaries and musicians and, you know, notable notables, I just looked at Anne deeply, took a breath, focused, don't be in a hurry, whatever you do, just do it. <laughs> and so I was all by myself to start out the song. And I was just as methodical as I could possibly be. And later, Paige said, you played that great. And I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I've learned to hate this song, but you guys really nailed it. Because people murder the song all the time. And then Jonesy, who we worked with, he was like, way to go. You know, he's really sweet, too. They're all really sweet. So we're like, ah, oh, phew. <laughs> but I love the way that the musical director guy at the Kennedy Center, how they planned the arrangements so beautifully, because it starts out one instrument and it grows, and then it grew to a small ensemble of singers, and then it grew to another small ensemble of strings, and then it grew to a larger ensemble of orchestra and brass, and another larger ensemble of choir then the bowler hat at the end of it was just like that was the whole like clincher and and the fact that jason bottom was playing drums 
the son of their original drummer, John. He, you know, tipped his bowler to them up in the balcony. All of that is why they were emotional mm-hmm. reaction to the song because it was a a surprise, b so well presented, and most of all, I think Jason Bonham, you know, just grabbed them by their hearts. <laughs> Especially with the bowler that his dad used to wear, right? I know exactly. Along the same lines, you mentioned that you did Blackbird on your new album, You and Me. And you also did a Geico favorite, Fixing a Hole. Lots of different bits and bobs in that tune. A lot of cool parts. Yeah. So I I did the sacrilegious thing and I actually sang a Beatles song. But (laughs) (laughs) there's just a way that that, again, in a very aspirational, uplifting sort of tonality, I thought that would be really a good song to put out there. Because the rain's getting in, but we're fixing this hole. You know, it's like... Do not despair, you know. <laughs> you know, it's it's funny. I, I saw McCartney probably, I don't know, maybe 2002 or three, one of the times. At the very beginning of the set, after a couple songs, a big hole in the stage opens and the piano comes up, similar to the one behind you. And he was walking back, uh, you know, soaking in the cheers, and he didn't see the hole open oh, up. Oh, I heard about that. I saw it on YouTube. Yes, and I was right, like, bird's eye view. Like, of course, there's 20,000 people, and I'm chanting, Paul, turn around. Of course, he's not going to hear me. And he does fall on top of the piano. Oh, God. Then he raises the thumbs up. They they bring him up. They bring the thing up. And he said, you know, wasn't paying attention. I was too busy looking at some birds in the front row. Typical Paul. And then he says, we're going to change the set list. This next song is called fixing a hole oh that's cool (laughs) have you ever played with paul or met paul at all i've seen paul and i've met paul Mm -hmm. i saw wings uh, in the day and then i saw paul's show about three more times and met him a few times i got to introduce him to Anne one time oh that's cool he's just who exactly you want him to be he's he's gracious he's a wink and a nudge you know (laughs) he's a thumbs up guy you know he's a piece yeah that, you know, he's just the, the Beatle you want him to be. Did you see the documentary yet with uh, Rick Rubin? Everybody has been telling me about this, and I haven't seen it. It's on my list. I heard it's just a blowaway. Three, two, one. Yeah, it's called. And it's on Hulu. It's insane. It's one million thrills beyond thrills. And they're they're separating tracks, and they're listening to parts. And he's talking about doing it, and talking about the days, and... and the creative stuff and you'll die and you'll watch it all over again. Watching him talk about his own songs. I say the, f- the same thing about him and, and about, about the stones and a couple other bands. When those bands are finally done, it's, it's really is like, like when you see the stones play or Paul, it's like going to rock and roll Jurassic park. <laughs> You're seeing this beautiful creature that once it's gone, you'll never see it again. You know what I mean? Yeah, nearly extinct, you know, species. Right. Original rock, you know, dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah, but in a good way, right? Yeah. Only in the best way. But yeah, uh, I've seen Paul quite a few times. Seeing Steely Dan, seeing Stones. Nowadays, you know, you go see Pearl Jam and they're the, yeah. not the young ones anymore. So <laughs> they're the new classic rockers, you know. Another question from our good friends at Geico. When Heart first started, what were some of the first tours you got that you were like, oh my gosh, I can't believe we're actually here? 
Well, the very first big arena we played in Montreal was right after we had been fired from a dinner club near Vancouver because uh, Anne said something derogatory about the the dinner in the sterno, you know, bins with the dinner that tasted like Lysol or something. <laughs> and we were immediately sent out on a rail. And we got a call from Rod Stewart's people mm. to see if we could open for Rod Stewart in Montreal in a couple of days. It's like, why, yes, we can. <laughs> got on a train, went across the continent and opened for Rod Stewart. Our first single had just started playing there, which was Magic Man. Mm. And we started with Magic Man at the show, not knowing they already loved the song. Oh, wow. It hadn't been released anywhere yet. So they were holding up their lighters, you know, and we were like, what? What? (laughs) It was one of those life moments where you go, wow, is this really... Are we really getting somewhere with all this after being fired from from Lucifer's? <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, it's in our book. I think it's one of the first stories because it's a good story. Oh yeah, <laughs> well, it's amazing how, how things were back then. Where if you had a DJ that liked the band and would play your single, it's not like you had internet reports that you were getting major play in Montreal. You know? No, we didn't even know. It was a wonderful surprise. And then, you know, we went more across Canada, region by region, opening for more Canadian bands like ZZ, ZZ Top, ZZ Top, as they were called there, and April Wine and Nick Gilder and a bunch of guys in Canada. But then as we started filtering down into St. Louis, radio started playing us and more Midwest. And then so it was kind of like spreading gradually out towards the West, and then last but not least, New York. Right. The longest holdout of anybody to, to like us. Mm-hmm. It was a different way that it would roll out. I want to talk to you about a few more things. It's really interesting to me. You're going to do your, your symphony uh, concert with the, with the Seattle Orchestra. Uh, you mentioned a little bit of that with the Kennedy Stairway to Heaven, but, but you, now you're doing your own show with the, with the orchestra. Yeah. How do you compose these parts? How do you work with the the symphony director? How does that all come together? Well, my friend Sue Ennis, who is a collaborator forever and on my new album too, she's really a tightly networked person in the Seattle scene. And she knows this guy, Andrew Jocelyn from the Seattle Symphony, who does a lot of score work as well. So she hooked me up with him because I needed some strings on the one song called Walk Away that I thought would sound great with a bunch of string parts. He played all the parts himself, and he also kind of leads the symphony in rehearsals and stuff like that. So I, we chatted about a show, and we decided we were wanted to make a show happen with the symphony, including some heart music as well as a bunch of my new stuff. Mm-hmm. So we planned it at first for early July, but then we saw that if we were just going to have a distanced audience of really high price ticket benefit, you know, concert goers. And then we learned that the the Washington state area is going to open up for more 
less distant stuff. So we moved it back to the end of October to be safe, mm-hmm. which allowed us to fill up the whole house and do something special for the VIP people. Mm-hmm. So I think that's going to be really, really amazing. But my singer from Roadcase, Liv Warfield, now has other work. So I'm auditioning for another singer for Just the Heart, you know, which will be, I think I found one, but, um, you know, a girl from Seattle, mm. too. So I think that'll be fun and, and really exciting and what one of a kind show. For sure. But then they'll stream it later. Mm-hmm. And then leading up to it, we're planning to do hopefully a, a run of West Coast shows just for warm up. Remember how? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when you're putting together the set list, and this comes from our friends at Geico, do you play more obscure songs that you don't usually play with hard, or do you stick with the hits? Oh, no. you. I think it's fair when you stick with the hits. If they don't hear these dreams, and if they don't hear Crazy on You, and if they don't hear Barracuda, maybe even What About Love, or you know, then they're going to kind of feel like, I didn't get to hear my favorite. Yeah, 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 yeah. I understand that. And I don't blame anybody, you know. The new stuff that I'm doing, my own stuff, is rewarded by some hits, I think. Have you started working with the conductor as far as putting together the the symphonies parts? I worked with um, my friend Andrew, and he he was mocking up a bunch of charts for me and sending me emails with these parts. I said, okay, okay, well, if you just kind of thin it out over here and da 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 Right, right, right. In a song, for instance, like Barracuda, you can't have the strings going, da da la da That doesn't work. It's got to just be the guitars that are doing that. So, you know, we just kind of figured it all out together, and now we're going to have charts in case I think there's already some other interest in other concert shows. Mm-hmm be able to do in other cities with those charts and those orchestras. It's so powerful. Like if you, I don't know if you've heard the Metallica uh, sessions, they did S and M Scorpions did one. I mean, there's, it's so much, it's just so heavy yeah. when you have that orchestra behind you. When you hear orchestra strings all playing together, mm-hmm. there's a certain atmospheric breathing thing that happens with the strings because they are going in back and forth and there's also kind of the rosin the air of the rosin on the string itself yeah creates that kind of air yeah it's like it's like a cascading wash of sound you know it's a wash and it's also like it ebbs and flows Mm -hmm. with all of the, the the forte and the pianissimo stuff that they do so when it gets like quiet and small and then it goes bigger and bigger, you can feel the emotion in that. Mm-hmm. Those are beautiful instruments when they can all, when they're played well. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> Which if it's the Seattle Symphony Orchestra, I'm pretty sure they'll be able to play it well, yeah. Uh, last couple of questions for you. Is there plans for Hart to go back out this fall, next year? Well, there's an offer from Live Nation for 2022. Okay, great. And so... We're in talks, and uh, with all of the right decision-making in place first, then it'll be really fun to get back out with heart, put on a big show, a big show. It's awesome, too, because your band, like, you can tour with Def Leppard, or you can tour with Journey, or you can headline and go out with Cheap Trick. I think I've seen all those iterations of heart. It's just that you guys fit with so many people. Cheap Trick, we've been out with probably more than any other yeah. band in the 
<laughs> and Joan Jett as well. A lot with Joan Jett. And it's a really good lineup. Last time out, we had Brandy Carlisle. We had Cheryl Crow. We were had all openers that were all women. And we had Maggie Rose. We had Emily Wolfe. All really great what's, players. What's Rob Schneider's daughter? L. King. L. King. I forgot to say L. King. Baby's about to have her. Oh. <laughs> I follow her on Instagram. She's great. Yeah. That was a great gig. We actually saw that, which seems like a thousand years ago, but it was probably probably 2019 in Tampa with Joan Jett. No, it was it was it was amazing. It was amazing. Two more things I want to ask you: What's your favorite heart song to play live? That's question number one. And what's your favorite song from this new record of yours? That's one B. Those are hard. <laughs> it's really hard questions. Hard, I know, right? Sometimes a song like like Mistral Wind is a really fun song to play. It's sort of a quintessential heart-type song mm-hmm. from a good era. It tells a story in the lyrics like it tells musically at the same time. It's kind of the Ulysses of heart songs, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but if it's a ballad, I always loved doing Going to California by Led Zeppelin. Oh, wow, yeah. There's something so touching. That song it just has such a... a Beautiful melancholy in it with a little mandolin sparkle and all that. But if it was a heart song, I don't know which ballad it might be. I don't know. There's so many. Yeah, they're all your babies, right? <laughs> Too many to choose from. How about from your new album? Everybody has their different favorites that they tell me they, they like. Like a lot of people love the in between, a lot of people love, but I think maybe you and me, the title. It's boldly personal. It's bravely sweet. It's revolutionarily pretty. Mm. It's kind of bears your soul in a certain way that's really, really there. It's really, a, I'm speaking such truth in that song in another sort of space, in different gravity, to, to my mom, basically. You know, so she's in a different gravity. It's a conversation with an angel, kind of. And so is for Edward. So, you know, those are kind of two bookends that work in that way. Last thing, talking about the greatest cameo of all time, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, when you uh, <laughs> pull up next to Judge Reinhold with the pirate outfit on. Do you have people that come talk to you about that quite often? People are like, I didn't know that was you. Oh. <laughs> Because, yeah, it's like Beautiful Girl in Car was the credit. <laughs> Is that what it was? Beautiful Girl in Car? Yeah. So <laughs> I tried to do another part in another Cameron Crowe film called The Wildlife. But I played a, a pregnant cop's wife in that, in that, and I had lines. I realized that I was never cut out to be an actor, ever, ever. I died when I saw myself on screen. Plus, and then I used the excuse of, I can't get up that early. That's not the work for me, okay? I'm not doing any more films. <laughs> <laughs> it is amazing. For those who don't know, Nancy is in the car, the beautiful blonde in the car when Judge Reinhold has his big stupid pirate hat on uh, when he's delivering the fish and chips. So, Nancy, <laughs> what a great conversation. It's so nice to talk to you. Well, absolutely, you too, always. Thank you so much. I, I'll see you on the road somewhere down the line, I'm sure. Yeah, we'll see you out there. See you around the old corral. Yeah, exactly. Excited. <laughs> and I'll, I'll buy you a drink, but I left my wallet in the car, so. 
<laughs> oh, gee, it's, it's don't have it on me, man. Can you fuck me? <laughs> <laughs> thank, thank you so much. Thanks a lot. And don't forget, and this includes all our friends at Geico, check out Nancy Wilson performing live with the Seattle Symphony at the Benner Royal Hall on October 30th in Seattle. Still a few tickets available if you want to attend in person. I think you should go. It's going to be a great show. Don't forget, if you can't make it in person, like like me, I'm going to stream it live and so can you. Just go to seattlesymphony.org for more information. That is seattlesymphony.org. 